everyone. Welcome to Reluctantly Adult, an advice podcast for people who believe they shouldn't be allowed to adult. I'm your host, Charmel Scipio, and I Reluctantly Adult. For the month of April, we've been talking about travel. For this episode, I speak with Rita Golden Gelman, the self-proclaimed female nomad. Rita has been traveling the world without a permanent residence for almost 30 years. She shares with us how and why she became a nomad, um, how she integrates herself into the local culture when she gets to her destination, and how she approaches learning new languages. Uh, This was an incredible, incredible opportunity to interview her. Uh, It was just by chance that she happened to still be in the United States when I reached out to her. Um, It was so cool, definitely mind-blowing, and I hope you all enjoy. Welcome to Reluctantly Adult. Please introduce yourself to the people. Hi, I'm Rita Golden-Gilman. I'm a writer. My most popular book is Tales of a Female Nomad. That's my most popular adult book. Mm -hmm. But I've got 70 kids' books. And the most popular one of those, which is in almost every school in the country, is called More Spaghetti, I Say, about a monkey who can't stop eating spaghetti. That's awesome. Anyway, that's who I am. I have been traveling the world as a nomad for 29 years without a permanent home. That's amazing. (laughs) That's absolutely amazing. (laughs) Um, it's a wonderful life. It it sounds like you know you were actually brought to my attention um, by a friend of mine uh, a couple months ago. I, I reached out to her. You know, we were just having a coffee, and she was just like, you know, so what's going on with your podcast? And I told her I was like, oh, I'm I'm planning out my uh, travel series, and she was saying, oh my god, like you have to try and get in contact with this woman Rita you know she hasn't had a permanent home in like years basically like our whole entire lives and she was like I think that she would be a really really good interview for you um you should see if you can reach out to her so I was just like oh I mean someone that lives a life like that like why would they want to talk to me and you know I I reached out to you and I went onto your website and I was absolutely fascinated by you because you know what? I am so easily available. <laughs> I'll talk to anybody. I'll write to anybody. I love, love, love getting emails. So what I wanted to understand and what I wanted you to, you know, explain to my audience is sort of, you know, why do you travel and, and what draws you to it? I travel to meet people, mm-hmm. to learn about other ways of living. And my background, my academic, well, my personal background is I grew up I thought I was a pharmacist from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And I, all the time I was going up, probably from eighth grade on, I worked the soda fountain in the pharmacy. And it was in an, it was in an immigrant neighborhood. And I got to talk to people who were immigrants. And I was curious, and I asked them questions. And then I, you know, I got off into the world and into adulthood, and I didn't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the back of my head was always that curiosity about what life is like around the world. And when I divorced, mm-hmm. I woke up and I said, okay, now it's time. Now this is my time. And then I just took off. I, we sold a house. Mm-hmm. I never bought anything else and we just took off. My academic background is anthropology. So it's a good fit. Right. Absolutely. So... Let's talk about the your your divorce because in in your book it seems like that was the definite turning point for you. 
um, it seems like you and, and your husband had gotten to a point where, you know, your your children had grown up. They they were either already in college or one was just getting ready to go off to college and just sort of the way that you related to each other had completely changed. And, and in sort of this new identity between the two of you, just things weren't working. So it led to divorce and led you to, to this new sort of avenue. Can, can you really talk about those, those feelings of, of what was happening at that time? I wanted to be more adventurous. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids were gone and, uh, and he didn't. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to take a little break mm-hmm. and come back and, and, and try to bring more adventure into our lives. Well, by the time I got back, he had decided that he wasn't looking for more adventure. He was looking to get out. Right. And it was very disappointing. I had no idea that that's what was going to happen. Um, but it did. And, and I just sort of twisted it around and looked at it and said, okay, I'm going to live my dream, which was to travel the world and connect in other cultures. And it worked. Were you were you worried or scared about sort of taking on this this new this new life? I started out very scared. I was going to out into this unknown world by myself, and I, I was scared when I started. But it didn't take very long to realize that wherever I was, people were welcoming me. Unlike what happens in this country these days, um, I wherever I went, I got smiles. I smiled, and I got smiles back. Mm-hmm. And welcome. So it didn't take long for the worry to go away. And, you know, these days, and anybody I don't know is is, uh, an invitation to get to know someone. Right. Absolutely. It felt like um, just just reading the book that that you were going through both grief and relief at the same time. And I hate that those things rhyme um, because it sounds so cheesy to me. Uh, But it it, it felt like (laughs) you were you were sort of simultaneously experiencing those things where you were just like, I don't necessarily have to live up to this this life that everyone believes I should be leading. Um, but also sort of grieving for the life that you had and that you had sort of grown into loving, too. Well, you know, I I grew up obeying the rules. You know, when I was in high school, of course, you pretty much have to because you want to be a part of the group. And then I did what I was supposed to. I went to college. I got out of college. I got married. I had children. I did all the things that I was supposed to do. And, and there was something missing in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had never anticipated a divorce. You know, I mean, I'm from an era where where it wasn't that common as it is today. And so when when the divorce happened, um, I there's no question that there was grief that that I I cried and didn't know what I was going to do. But at a certain point, I said, Well, you know what? You're alone. You're finally free to make any decisions you want. And I had been married for 25, 24 years, the divorce, 25 years. And and I had pretty much followed the rules. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, I realized that I didn't have to. And I, I just took off. And I was scared at first. I was in tears on the airplane. I decided I was going to go from L.A. to Mexico, which didn't seem so far away. as You know, it, it wasn't that risky. Right. Um, but I, I cried on the plane going down. But it didn't take long. It, it, once you've experienced 
uh, days, weeks, months, all of a sudden it becomes just exciting and not scary at all. So let me ask you then, why become a nomad rather than, you know, just take sort of an extended vacation or something like that? Why sort of completely shed your old, your old life and, and do something different? I wasn't all that happy with my old life. It was, <laughs> it was very upscale. I mean, most people, every once in a while, I get a letter from somebody saying, I want the life you left. <laughs> it was upscale. We were in Los Angeles, my ex um, was an advisor to all kinds of magazines, mm-hmm. and we now had parties with stars and went to the Oscars and did all that kind of stuff. I didn't like it. It wasn't my life. The first line in my book, Tales of a Female Nomad, is, I'm living someone else's life. And it, it was not the life I ever would have planned to live, but I was living it. That's interesting. And, <laughs> like, to, to nowadays, if if we millennials were to say something like that, people would automatically say to us, oh, well, you're just living imposter syndrome. Like, that's all that is, is that you don't think that what you just... What kind of syndrome? It's called imposter syndrome, where essentially... I don't even know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's this new thing that... I, I don't even know if it's necessarily a new thing, but it's this idea that you don't believe that you belong to be, you belong in the places that you have access to, or you should be leading the life that you're leading. And that the remedy for it oftentimes, I swear to you, is to sort of fake it until you make it, until you get used to the world that's around you and you don't feel so much like um, an outcast or that, you know, at any moment now, someone will realize that you aren't supposed to be there and will ask you to leave or something like that. The good news is that when I leave the country, of course, nobody knows me. Right. You know, I don't... <laughs> um, the, my family and, and friends were all saying, you're running away, you know, you're not facing reality, you should be doing something that where you'll meet somebody, and it wasn't what I wanted. Um, and after a while, they gave up telling me that I was running away from something and realized that I was running toward new experiences. So, yeah, I mean, so they, it's true that, that everybody said I was running away, you mm-hmm. know, get with it, but I never did. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely a theme that I got from from reading your book is that you you don't necessarily sort of forcefully push against convention like it's it's not you sort of out in the streets sort of banging on a pot or or you know shouting from the rooftops that you know people just need to get in line with the way that you live however you have this sort of silent strength and and confidence in the new life that you're leading um in in the way that you sort of built that around yourself and and kind of grew into into the shoes that that you have as a nomad and, and really in, in better learning yourself and, and living your truth that that was so important to you? Um, you know, the, the more I did it, the more I do it, um, the more emphatic it becomes that it's a wonderful way to live. Mm-hmm. You know, the experiencing the shared life. My life is about connecting. That's the key word. Um, connecting wherever I am, even if I'm here in the U.S. Right. 
but it's the beauty of knowing that, that wherever I go, if I smile, people are going to smile back almost everywhere. There, there was one place, I, I don't know if you want me to talk about it. I went to Poland because mm-hmm. the book is my, my book is, is translated into Polish. Mm-hmm. And I went to Poland and people in Poland don't smile back. Mm-hmm. They don't make eye contact and they don't smile back. And that's my, my key is smiling and making eye contact. Right. And I finally, I was being taken around the country by the PR person of the publishing house in Poland. And finally, I said, why? Why can't I make eye contact? Why am I not getting smiles? And she said, the Nazis occupied Poland for years. And when they left, Stalin came in and nobody looks, you know, that that custom of not connecting with people you don't know is still a part of us. But I was invited into lots and lots of homes, so right. it's, I mean, it's not it's not typical of the Polish people, but on the street it is. Um, okay. And my, I have I have a business card, mm-hmm. um, and on the back of the business card is my travel philosophy. <laughs> and what is and that philosophy? Reads, <laughs> funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's smile a lot, talk to strangers. Mm-hmm. Accept all invitations, eat everything you're offered, cross a lot of borders, laugh, sing, learn, and go with the flow. <laughs> and I, I love all of those things, and they work, especially the smile and the talking to strangers. Absolutely. So, so let me then ask you about, you know, you mentioned basically, you know, smiling and making eye contact with people is essentially your your like travel calling card and the, the way that you get to kind of connect with people right. and even begin communication with them before actually having to verbally communicate with them. So in, in your book, you early on, you note two instances of miscommunication. Um, the, the first one, <laughs> the first one that I thought was really, really interesting is that, you know, had no one kind of clued you in on this like I honestly don't know how you would have figured it out but when you were in the um, Zapotec village in Mexico um, and this was like it was like my, the first the first place I went yeah yeah the, the first yeah. place that you went and essentially the women and children avoided you like like the plague like they they just wouldn't talk to you they ran away yeah like I would I would be mortified. I would absolutely be mortified if if that were me, um, because I would be like, oh my god, what's going on? And that's sort of how you felt as well. Like you were just like, what am I doing wrong? Like I'm I'm doing my best to open myself up. And then basically, a woman named Juanita, you know, kind of clued you into some of the markers of the the village by you know giving you some of their local traditional clothing uh, that was a little bit more. Let me tell you, the, uh, my initial connection with her mm-hmm. was she she was brave enough to come over and greet me. Mm-hmm. And then she said, where are you from? And this was before any of the women in this village talked to me. I was, right. I was living there for one month, and this was after a week. Hardly anybody had anything to say to me, except the men. But none of the women. They would run away. They would hide behind trees. They would rush into the closest house and peer out at me. Mm-hmm. And this woman was brave enough to come over and say, where are you from? And I said, I was from Los Angeles. And she burst into tears. Mm-hmm. Her mm-hmm. husband had gone to Los Angeles and was sending home checks 
every month. And all of a sudden, the checks stopped coming. And after about a week or two, she got a letter from his boss. He was working in a restaurant in L.A., and there was a kitchen fire, and he was killed. And he came home in a box. Oh, God. And I had... I had tears in my eyes, and I reached out. Now, mind you, no one has, no woman has talked to me until this moment. I just reached over, and I hugged her. And she looked at me, and she said, Will you come into my house and have coffee? And I did. And when we finished coffee, she said, I would like to ask a favor. I said, What? She said, Will you try on my clothes? Mm -hmm. Now, I was wearing pants and, you know, a typical t-shirt or something like that Mm -hmm. and she put on the skirt that was being worn by all the people in the village the design of it and the shirt the same thing an embroidered blouse and the belt a a scarf that she wound around a hundred times and and tucked in and she stepped back and she said you look beautiful i want you to wear my clothes while you're in my village Mm mm-hmm And a little while later, I walked out the door, and there were some women walking down the path. The first thing they did was laugh. Right. And the second thing they did was say, buenos dias. And it made all the difference in the world. And it was my first lesson. Mm -hmm. You can't be terribly different, or they'll be afraid of you. Right. Right. So wherever I go, I I try to wear the same clothes. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I go to the market and, and buy what they're wearing. Mm-hmm. You know, in India, which I went to after the book, um, you know, I some went to the market and I bought their uh, the, the clothes that they were all wearing. Mm-hmm. And wherever I went, that's what I did. In Bali, I had somebody take me to the market to mm-hmm. show me what it was mm-hmm. I was supposed to wear. And that was my very first lesson in in travel. It's a good one to learn. Absolutely. Don't be be different if you can possibly be the same. That was really, really interesting to me is that had she not said anything to you, honestly, like no one, no one would have ever talked to you, which is is a shame. Maybe not. Only the men, you know, the men who who weren't working because it was a farming community and it was, you know, off season. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but none of the women talked to me. And I had some Spanish. Also, they were talking their local Zapotec language, and I had Spanish, so that right. that was also a problem. Um, but my guess is that after, when, when they finally accepted me, um, they understood Spanish. Yeah. And I had some Spanish. So a little later in the book, um, it's still pretty early on, but it, but it's a little bit later, um, you talk about another sort of miscommunication um, when you were in Nicaragua. To put a little context around this, this is not Nicaragua today because this was something that not until I got maybe to the end of this chapter did I realize that you were talking about Nicaragua, Nicaragua in the 80s, not Nicaragua, you know, 2015. Um, so, you know, we're still we're still talking about the fallout from the the Contras. Um in, in the U.S. The U.S. was training Contras to bomb the schools that the Nicaraguan young people were were building, and you know it was it was during the Sandinistas. The mm-hmm. Sandinistas were the enemy of the U.S., and we were training Contras to go and bomb those schools. Mm-hmm. And I was living in Guatemala at the time, and I kept meeting Europeans who were coming back from Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. 
And the stories they told were totally different from what the U.S. was telling its people. Right. This was Reagan. Um, and I thought, I've got to go and see what it's like. I did go down and mm-hmm. discovered that they were wonderful. I had a wonderful time, and I spent practically a year living there. Mm-hmm. And Wasn't I wrote it? a book for teenagers called Inside Nicaragua, Young People's Dreams and Fears. And it was against the United States, and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, God, what's going to happen to me? And it won awards. So, <laughs> you know, in spite of, in spite of my, my negative feeling for what the U.S. was doing, I'm not trading in my passport because we have constitution and my rights as freedom of the press were honored. Hopefully it changed people's minds. I don't know. It wasn't until you mentioned Reagan in that chapter that I was just like, oh, wait, <laughs> wait, <laughs> this is referencing the 80s. Um, and and right. the reason that it, it brought to my mind is because um, I, I want to say maybe three weeks ago, President Obama announced that he was going to... Uh, begin declassifying some more documents around uh, the Contras and the disappearing of different people um, in Nicaragua and, and families would be able to find out what happened to some of their family members and sort of get some closure around that. But we're talking about anywhere between 28 to 25 years later after this has happened. Right. Um, and it really sort of, I guess it put into perspective for me um, some of the anxiety that seemed to to be around, you know, what it was that you were writing in, in being there. Most of what I experienced in Nicaragua was very, very positive. They were they were bringing their country up to a new standard. They mm-hmm. were, um, you know, the, and it was, you know, they were definitely connected to Russia. Mm-hmm. When I got there, the U.S. had had, you know, stopped trading with them. Right. The the dictator before um Daniel Ortega um had he was totally American oriented. Mm-hmm. All the cars and all the machines and all the a lot of the trade and the all came from the US. When he was thrown out, nothing was available in Nicaragua. It was a whole other experience. But it was an education for me because there was, the U.S. was being fed lies mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and I was being treated beautifully. You, when, when you were in um, Nicaragua, you, you stayed there uh, for about six months, correct? Well, no, you said you stayed there for a year. Um, I'm, not, I'm not honestly sure how long. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you had... Um, you had been invited uh, to lunch by your landlady, and oh yeah, and she, you know, she asked you to to come by at Dulce y Media, which is twelve thirty. Um, but you heard Dulce y Media, which is two thirty. Yeah. Um, right. Which, as non <laughs> as as non native Spanish speakers, is actually a mistake that we make all the time. Um, because there's there's a little bit of nuance in there that that we don't pick up right away, um, you know. And subsequently, you showed up late. <laughs> um, and all and all her guests who were invited to meet me were gone. <laughs> she wasn't happy, and she stopped talking to me. Oh my goodness! And eventually, we we talked again. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it was horrible that that um, you know I had blown it, and and she 
had been embarrassed because of me, but that doesn't happen very often. I'm sure that 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 those two instances weren't your first sort of miscommunications in, in all of your travels. Sort of what do you do to kind of get the benefit of the doubt from, from your hosts and, and to, you know, overcome those, um, those miscommunications? Well, we kind of, if I don't have the language, we, we talk, write notes or whatever, uh, and so it's been understood. You know, I haven't had other situations where, you know, it was so obvious and, and so embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of times where, where you know, the, the communication is tough. I don't speak the language. Right. You talk about in, in the way that you get to know a culture and the way that you connect to it. Um, you And you have several instances in the book where you participate in different sorts of rituals and celebrations. Um, and mm-hmm. sort of at the center of those celebrations is, is really getting to know the women through um, cooking alongside them. You know, can you talk more about how participating in this way um, connects you to not only um, the culture, but also the women that, that you meet? Right. No, I, I don't stay in hotels. You know, I, I, probably can count on one hand the number of hotels I've stayed in mm-hmm. in the last 29 years. I, I find houses to stay in. And then I participate in their lives, you know, cooking in the kitchen. And they're always, I mean, they're, there's always laughter because I do things wrong. Right. Um, I cut an onion the wrong way. We cut onions in slices. They cut down. Um, this was something I discovered in... in it was in Indonesia, mm-hmm. and everybody laughed, and I laughed at myself. I spent a lot of time laughing at myself, making tortillas, um, you know, slapping them so that they, uh, you know, are round. And mine always had holes in them and ragged edges, and they made fun of me. And and I laughed with them. And it's not hard to laugh at yourself, and and it makes it it makes you human to them. Absolutely. I don't want to be, I don't want to be this, this, you know, rich American. Um, I don't, I, I try not to teach them things. I try to learn from them, whether it's booking, whether it's ceremonies, whether it's how to walk with something on my head that of course always falls and everything rolls around on the ground and everybody laughs, <laughs> and I laugh too. Right. That, that's actually very, um, that's incredible that you can kind of, insert yourself into into these different cultures and the way that you do that is by not taking yourself too seriously not taking myself too seriously and it's that that anthropology in me you know an anthropologist learns and now i have a master's in anthropology but i left the phd program when i took off to the world participant observer Mm -hmm. are the words that describe an anthropology i participate i watch what they do and, and then I do what they do. And it, and it works. And, and the idea of, of making a mistake is, is pretty natural and normal that I would laugh at myself. That's cool, though, you know, in the sense that you you get to learn with their children, but you also get to participate with them in, in sort of their, their everyday lives. Like, that's that's very... I don't know if that's necessarily something that that I could do, but 
it's not different from what some of my my other guests on this sh- on on this series have been saying that you know they'd rather stay in someone's home using Airbnb rather than stay in a hotel because you know staying in someone's home you get a better feel and a better vantage point of the rhythm of the neighborhood and and sort of what living as a citizen feels like rather than as a tourist. No question about it. You know the the experience. I mean the, the word that I constantly use about my life is connecting. Um, you connect with people when you're, when mm-hmm. you're doing what they're doing and interested in their language and playing with their kids and, you know, doing all of their um, experience. It's, it's a connecting thing that, that happens. And, and I just love it. And, and, you know, and it's true. They know more than I do about what their lives are like, how their world is viewed. And and I just, I love learning. So I want to ask you about uh, something a, l- a little bit more practical uh, around sort of the the how you do it, the, the how around being a, a nomad. Because, you know, you said earlier on in in the interview that, and even in, in your book, that you sold basically all your earthly possessions before you, you know, set off for um, your first trip in Mexico. And as you were beginning to, I guess, start your second year, you laid out a plan around um, how you would finance um, your travels. And you basically landed on the number of $15,000 per year. And what I wanted to ask you, you know, this was in the late 80s, early 90s. What I wanted to know is, A, is that still the number that you use to support yourself? Has it, has it continued to hold up for you over, over this th- almost 30-year period? Okay. Um, no, it's it's. I I make more than that with the, the Nomad book. Mm-hmm. Oh, that and Social Security. Right. And I still have no house. I don't have to pay rent unless sometimes I do. Even in this country, if I decide I want to stay for six months. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I also when when I sold the house I was living in, or when we sold the house we were living in. I got half of the money, and I, I invested it, and it's still sitting there. Mm-hmm. So I tell people I'm homeless, but I'm not poor. Right. I don't use that money. I try to use the money I make. When I travel, if I need money and I'm running out, I, I was able to write children's books because I had a lot of contacts in the children's book world. Absolutely. I had published a lot of books before I started. I mean, the Nomad book didn't come until many, many years later. Um, but the children's books, you know, I would go around spending money, and then when I was ready, I would I could write kids' books on the road. I could never have written the Nomad book on the road. That right. I had to withdraw from the world. But the kids' books I could write, and it was like $3,000 a book at that point. And um, at this point, I have like 70 kids' books, most of them out of print. But along the way, they they all helped. And when I go places, I share those books, and that's a fun thing to do as well. Right. Um, five of them have been translated into Spanish. That's awesome. And that's a great, you know, it's a great way to connect. And there are a lot of pictures, you know, they're for little kids. The, um, I don't have money, I don't have money problems. Mm-hmm. One, I stay at homes. Two, there are a number of, of, I mean, everybody knows about couch surfing, I think. Do you? Yeah, I, I learned about it earlier in this series. <laughs> okay. 
So, but the the organization that I love is called Servas. S e r v a s dot org. Around the world, who are in this organization because they want you to come visit them. That's why they're there. They don't get money. They don't get anything out of it other than meeting interesting international travelers. And I've used Servas a lot, in both in this country and around the world. And when I come to a new country these days, mm-hmm. I go in and I make a reservation with the first Servas host in the city where I'm going. It's a two-night stay. And they feed you dinner, and you live in their house, and it's really fun. And then I, if I want, and sometimes they'll say, why don't you stay longer? We're having such a good time. If I've made more than one, that first reservation, then I can't do it, because I've got a whole list of things, people to visit uh, along the way. So I just make that first two-night reservation. And then when I'm ready to leave after the first two nights, usually, I'll say, can you help me? And they know the other people who are in the organization. Or can you help me find a place to rent for the, for the next six months? Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a friend in the country. So Servas is absolutely a key to, to anybody who wants to get out there. I would say join. You can also host people. You can be one of those 15,000 hosts. Mm-hmm. I can't. But you don't have to be. Right. Okay. Trust is... is also a, a major part of, of my life. Absolutely. You know, talking to people, going into homes when people say, come have coffee or whatever. Um, I do, I have a lot of trust in my life. And <laughs> I tell my daughter, I said, someday, honey, I'm going to trust a serial killer. But what a ride it's been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's something that was very evident in your book that, you know, you could make travel friends really, really quickly. Um, yeah. And you had the, the ability to kind of discern people that were trustworthy versus people that weren't trustworthy and, and sort of be able to, to build a network of other fellow travelers and backpackers that you could then call on as you began to, to expand your, your travel footprint. I have, I have some, I'm looking at it because I pulled it out the, just a little while ago. At a certain point, a number of years ago, my daughter wrote me, she lives in Seattle, which is where Starbucks is born, and they were putting out paper cups, and on the cups they were putting quotes. And my daughter wrote me, she said, I have a friend who works in the main office, send them quotes. And I did. And I am proud to say I am tall cup number 31. That's awesome. <laughs> and and the, my quote is, risk-taking, trust, and serendipity are key ingredients of joy. Without risk, nothing new ever happens. Without trust, fear creeps in. Without serendipity, there are no surprises. That's amazing. Like, <laughs> that is so cool. That, first it's of all... Fun, and I do risk and trust and, and, and not making plans, just going with the flow. It's how I live. I have almost no fears. Mm-hmm. You know, I started out afraid, but the more I do it, the more I realize I, I really am not fearful. I trust people. So I told a, a couple people that, you know, that I was interviewing you and, and sort of the premise behind, um, you know, you're your being a nomad. And, you know, one of the questions that that I got was, <laughs> do you think that you will ever permanently come back to the U.S.? 
you know, I am not doing what I was doing for for much of that book. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not living in other countries. I'm 78 years old. Um, and, you know, a year ago, February, I went to Madagascar for several weeks with a couple of guys that I talk about in the book, Lars and Mirren from France. Um, and in November, I'm going to uh, Cuba with my daughter. And I'm not really traveling the way I was. Mm-hmm. So I, at this point, I'm staying in my daughter's house because she and her husband are doing a lot of traveling. And I'm sort of house-sitting. And I, I don't know how much travel I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Traveling with these two guys was great because they carried my bags and they made all the arrangements, and I loved it. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know where I'm going to go next, but the, my, the nature of my travel is going to be different. I don't like cruises, which would be a logical thing for somebody my age to mm-hmm. do. I, I don't want to be around lots of people like me. <laughs> um, and I, I'm I'm still thinking it through. I don't know. Right. Fortunately, my health is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have bits and pieces of me that aren't so great, but my systems all work. Right. So I I don't really know. I don't know what I'm. You know, I'm still tossing it around in my head. Do I want to go to another country and sit still? I I haven't come up with that. I've right. been thinking about writing writing another adult book about getting old. Mm-hmm. So can you can you tell me more then about, you know, traveling around, um, you know, as an, as an older traveler and then, you know, sort of aging as you travel, sort of what that experience was like for you? <laughs> this, is, this is an anecdote that I'm opening this old age book with. I was in Thailand and... I wanted to write about it, what it was like to stay in a Thai resort village mm-hmm. where nobody spoke English. And there were a bunch of cabins across the street from a beach, and I was staying in one of those cabins. And I had a blouse that buttoned up the front, and the buttonholes were bigger than the buttons. Mm-hmm. And every time I spread my arms, the blouse opened up, and I was totally exposed. Right. And I didn't know how to go into a store and ask for a needle and thread. So I just lived with it. And one day I saw a maid from the bungalows sewing the pillowcase. And I ran over to her and I said, and I mind this. I showed her what happened mm-hmm. when I opened my arms. And I said, you have a needle, you have a thread. She didn't speak English, but I showed her. She had enough words that she, we could communicate. Right. And I said... I give me the needle, give me the thread. I will sew up the front and put it on and off over my head. She looked at me, she smiled, and she said, "You old, nobody care." Oh no! <laughs> and I thought about it, and I thought, "This is liberation. <laughs> I can do what I want to do." Absolutely, nobody really does care. And it was it was a wonderful, wonderful revelation that that. I didn't have to think about what other people thought because they weren't thinking about me. It was just a wonderfully liberating thought. I had no rules anymore. Yeah, and that was something that that was in um, sort of your your nomad book too because you said, I don't live in the United States, so I'm not bound by those rules. And 
when I come into another country, I'm a tourist. So the rules that, you know, residents that live there would abide by outside of breaking the law, you're not necessarily required to know because you're not from there. So you live in this weird intersection where there inherently aren't any rules. So you're allowed to do, you know, whatever it is that you want and and sort of live up to the standards that you set for yourself, uh, regardless of what other people think you should be doing. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and it's, it's very nice. <laughs> I, I love the idea that I can create my own life. I do respect the local rules, Absolutely. you know, even though I don't, you know, like putting on their clothes and, and honoring their headscarves, is that what I have to wear or whatever. But it's true that, that you know, the demands that are made of each other in, in a culture um, are not going to be made of me mm-hmm. because I'm this I'm this strange person. Um, but I do I try to learn what they're doing and how 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 to respect what they how they live. I was oh God. I haven't. I didn't think to ask this question of the people that were earlier in in the series, but I wanted to ask you about it specifically because of how your travel has been set up over the years. You know, how do relationships work for you as far as like romantic relationships um you know where are they sort of like short-term flings or is it more like a like a long distance situation no i haven't had any long-term anything it's it's one night stand here and there mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe a week maybe a week um you know i'm i'm i didn't live a celibate life all these years right absolutely um but and, and i write about that in the book mm-hmm. as well um, but I have not had any serious long-term anything. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to confess that, that I, I love being so totally free to do what I want to do and not have to ask anybody. Right. It's, 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 it's very nice. Um, nobody telling me I'm doing it wrong or um, here's what I should do or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's liberating. Yeah, I think that was the the number one thing that I was most drawn to. Um, sort of as you as you mentioned, some of the different relationships that you had had is that you weren't sort of tethered to have to to answer to anything. Like you were just like, and I'm leaving. All right, <laughs> maybe I'll catch you around exactly. in another country. Um, but you weren't sort yep. of beholden to that. No, I, I had no long term relationships at all. I mean, there are people that I I keep in touch with here and there. Mm-hmm. But we're not talk- we're not talking serious relationships on any level. If someone was, you know, if if someone hears this and they're like, I think I want to do, you know, this this nomadic lifestyle. Um, how would you advise to go about doing that? You know, given all of your years of experience, um, think about places that you dreamed of going. Join Servas or look, have a look, and see if Servas is in the country where you're going. Because it is an easy way to do it. Um, I, a, a lot of the book is not, I didn't do service. I just went to a country and, and asked around about where I could stay. Yeah. I recommend staying for a long time, you know, to stay for a few days in a country or in a place. It's, it's just not enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes much deeper and much richer and much more satisfying um, if you stay for a month, two months, a year, 
I was in Bali for eight years, well, in Indonesia for eight years. Right. Um, and and it has never left me. You know, I haven't been there since ninety nine. But but Bali just took over my life, and and I was in Borneo, which is also Indonesia, with orangutans. Mm-hmm. I was in the mountains of Irian Jaya, which is on New Guinea. All of those are in Indonesia. Now I learned the language when I first came, so that that was useful, and it you know kept me going there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would all I, I would just recommend that would be the first thing I would say. Don't get on a bus and look out the window at the people. Right. Try to find a home to live in and ask them to to take you to their ceremonies. I also think that the developing world is a much more interesting uh, way to travel than than you know Europe or Australia or whatever. You know, they're, they're, it, it's much much different. Absolutely. From where you are. And and I think it's just more interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Given what else would I advise? Again, wear wear their clothes if you can, learn their language. Mm-hmm. It, it's amazing how little, how few questions they ask you. Right. Um. Uh. You know, I'm I'm always the one with far more questions than they have for me. You know, very few people want to know what my life is like mm-hmm. or was like. I don't know if I have kids. Right. Um, but in terms of a way of life, they're not interested. Right. They love it when I ask them about their lives, and, and it honors them that, that that I'm interested, and I am. Other advice for other people who want to travel. Yeah, learn the language if you can. Mm-hmm. I try to learn not words, but sentences. And that that's a useful thing to know about a language. Mm-hmm. If if you learn words and you have to put them together and you have to know grammar and all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I learn sentences so that I can actually say something. The Indonesian language, which is part of the reason that I stayed there for so long, is mm-hmm. a really easy language to learn. There are no plurals, there's no verb to be, there are no tenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word makan, N A K A N mm-hmm. means eat. The past tense of Makan is yesterday eat. Oh, wow. Okay. And the future of Makan is tomorrow eat. Yeah, that's pretty easy. Uh, it is. Uh, also, there are, there's no, there are no plurals. Right. The word Anak, A-N-A-K, means child. More than one child is Anak, Anak. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's not it, going to places where you know something about the language is good. Right. Or learning when you get there. That's pretty cool. And again, people people are honored if what you want to do is learn your language. Mm-hmm. This is cool. Like, <laughs> I'm genuinely like, you know, like taken aback because um, right now I'm I'm trying to learn Arabic and it's a little bit difficult um, for me. But oh. maybe I'll, you know, try and switch around my approach and you know do like you said with trying to figure out helpful phrases. And, and sort of work backwards from there rather than trying to use the individual words and then fitting them together um, to form sentences. Maybe Absolutely. that'll be easier. You, you, don't need, you don't need grammar if, if you learn a sentence, you got it right. <laughs> um, when, yeah. I, when, people ask me to, when people ask me to teach them English, that's what I do. You know, how are you? Right. Or I have two children. Or what would you like for dinner? You know, I teach them whole sentences 
that they can learn and feel good about themselves and mm-hmm. not and know that they're doing it right. Absolutely. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Just be with be with the people, smile all the time. Be the first to say hi. Mm-hmm. Make eye contact, smile, and say hi. Um, you know, if they're not sure of you, um, they're not going to say. They're, they're, they might not say hi first. Right. You know, you're you're intimidating. Right. Also, if you're alone, and this is interesting, if you're alone, you're less intimidating than if you're with a woman, and even less if you're and you know if you're with a man, then mm-hmm. then you're complete, and they don't have to talk to you. Right. Being alone make, makes them feel sorry for you when they want to talk to you. <laughs> yes, take pity on me, talk to me. That's right, exactly. <laughs> it works. And I always ask about a bed in a house. You know, if, if, if it's not serve us, I ask, do you know anyone who has a room that they can rent me? Right. Where I can pay. And the pay is, can be anything from $5 to... You know, depending upon where you are, obviously. But um, I ask guides if they know. I ask the head of the village. I ask a waitress. I'll go three or four times to the same restaurant for mm-hmm. for breakfast if I'm staying in a hostel. Um, and then I'll ask the waitress, do you know someplace? Because I, I sit at the same table and try to make a relationship. Connecting, again, it's mm-hmm. that word for me, is really what, what my life is all about. So are there any, like, like your top three travel tips for someone um, if they're not a nomad or just in general as they're traveling that you would suggest for folks? I think assume that you're welcome. The assumption that, that people are glad you're visiting their country, uh, which makes that smile easier. Um, ask questions. Mm-hmm. It makes that connection. It reinforces that connection. Point out things that you see and ask about them. You know, carrying something on your head, mm-hmm. you know, and and it falls off the first time you try to walk with all the fruit in the basket on your head, and everybody laughs and you laugh, and everybody goes down and picks up the fruit, and you've made a connection. Right. What I've discovered is that in the end, the more the more you ask about, the more you experience of their lives, the more you realize that we're all the same wherever we are. You know, the people who still hunt with bows and arrows and Erie mm-hmm. and Jaya and the Guinea um, are no different if you get into their lives and into laughing with them and into singing with them. So speaking of songs and, and singing, um, do you have sort of like a travel theme song? Yeah. I love to sing, <laughs> but I don't have a theme song. Okay. I mean, the, song, the songs that I, I enjoy singing are folk songs. Right. Or pop songs from my own childhood. Um, or I try to learn the local songs if they're willing to teach me. Mm-hmm. But I don't have a, a theme song. And that is totally okay. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you the um, the cornerstone question of the podcast. And that is, uh, what is the best advice that you have never taken? <laughs> Exercise, Rita. <laughs> <laughs> I avoid it, and I should be doing it, and right. I know that, and that, that's certainly the best advice I should be listening to, and I don't do it. <laughs> I'm doing a little. I'm taking walks, not as many as I should. Right. <laughs> Listen, I have but to tell you, you're probably- a lady after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's beautiful and sunny outside today. Am I going to go out and walk? I don't know. <laughs> I should. I know I should. <laughs> right. Um, so how can people get in contact with you or um, follow your travels or, you know, just learn more about um, the process that you've gone through in, in becoming a nomad? Well, start with my book, Tales of a Female Nomad, mm-hmm. Living at Large in the World. Um, I have a website, com. I have a list serve that if you email me or someone emails me and says, I want to be on your list serve, mm-hmm. I will send you an invitation. And I, I get lazy, but I do, at the very least, once a month, write something to everybody who's on that. And there are a couple of thousand people at this point. Mm-hmm. I post here and there on Facebook, um, and my email address is nomad at gmail. And I try to answer most of the emails I get, mm-hmm. but that listserv is a good way to keep in touch with me because I have a lot of people who write me. Hey, can I add, can I add something that we didn't sure. talk about? Sure. My passion right now is the, knowing how I feel about the people of the world and the oneness of humanity, mm-hmm. I would love to encourage young people to take a gap year. Mm-hmm. Finish high, in your senior year, apply to college and ask for a deferral. And then there's something called the American Gap Association, mm-hmm. or you can put in gap year and see what's out there. Um, but get out there and travel and experience other cultures. You'll come back a different person with a, a an outlook on life that changes who you are, right. the better. And I would just love if high school graduates got a deferral of knowing that they were accepted into college for the following year and went out, even if it's just for three months. Mm-hmm. You know, if they start in sixth grade and, and, you know, all the presents that they get instead of wearing the shirt you don't like anyway from grandma, ask grandma to put a deposit into your gap year account. Mm-hmm. By the time you're out of high school, you have enough money to travel, and you'll come home. You're, you're a different person. Absolutely, and a better and a better person, and 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 you know who you are, and you're ready for college because you do know who you are when you've had that experience. Absolutely, um, Rita Golden Gelman. Thank you so much for being a guest on Reluctantly Adult. I really appreciate you responding back to me, um, and uh, you know sharing all of your your knowledge and all of the experiences that you've had literally for the entire time that I have been alive you have been a travel nomad and I think that that is absolutely <laughs> awesome so thank you very much well thank you very much I've enjoyed this I really appreciate it and that's it Like I said, this was such a fun conversation. I really appreciate Rita taking the time out to speak with me about all of her experiences that she's had. My top three takeaways from this particular conversation are when in Rome, dress like the Romans. Uh, It's so much easier to keep yourself out of trouble um, when you're dressed like everyone else. Also, if you're trying to learn a new language, uh, try to learn full sentences in the new language rather than focusing on the grammar like we're traditionally taught. At the very least, it'll be a little bit more functional for you. And finally, if you're going to become a nomad, you're going to need to have a main hustle or a side hustle that can easily be done remotely um, because clearly having money is critical 
to the way that you live. I want to thank my friend Carissa for bringing Rita to my attention. If we hadn't been having that coffee that one day, uh, I may have missed a great opportunity to interview her. So thank you very much. If you would like to learn more about Rita, you can visit her website at www.ritagoldengelman.com or you can pick up her book, Tales of a Female Nomad, Living at Large in the World. You can also email her at femalenomad at gmail.com if you want to be added to her listserv. All of these links will be on the website as well as the links for Servas and the American Gap Year Association. So tell me what you thought of the episode. You can leave a comment on the website at www.ireluctantlyadult.com or you can follow me on Instagram at ireluctantlyadult or on Twitter at reluctantlyadlt or you can email me at ireluctantlyadult at gmail.com. You can also rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, Apparently the podcast is now available on Google Play. I got an email from them saying that, so you might be able to find me on Google Play now. We will see. Also, I have a newsletter that will be going out at the end of this month. So if you are interested in seeing what is in said newsletter, please subscribe to it uh, on the website. Thank you to Christopher Davis for my intro and my outro music. If you like his music and you would like to hear more, you can find him on SoundCloud at CRD128. Uh, his username is CRD Music. Thank you to the amazing Ken Griffin for my incredibly dope logo. And thank you to all of you for listening. I'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>